Mark reminded me this morning uh, why the disciples didn't recognize Jesus on the way to, on the road to Emmaus. It's because he was wearing a coat and tie, and they'd never seen him dressed like that before. <laughs> My name is Todd, and I'm your pastor. <laughs> Last night, I actually was thinking about what I might wear today, and I went in there, and stuff was laid out for me, and I thought, I told Terry, I said, I, I didn't wouldn't plan on wearing a tie. And she said, oh, yeah, you are. <laughs> so here we go. <laughs> a few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to spend some time with uh, Glenn Frick and uh, his team at Physician Network Services. Uh, just kind of as a side note, it was really encouraging to me to see Glenn interact with his coworkers. Um, he introduced them uh, by name, and typically told me something about their lives that he would only know if he had invested in those relationships. And it was just an encouragement for me to see uh, what we talk about being lived out. Um, and so, thanks, Glenn, for that. Uh, when I met with them, we were talking about leadership development. And uh, I was asked specifically to, to talk a little bit about the leadership development that took place at, at UMC, and specifically the culture change that took place uh, during about the 15 years that I was uh, there at UMC. And it was a good exercise for me to just kind of think back on that and and to tell Glenn and his team that really what it all came down to for us as an organization was when we realized that we could have all kinds of bells and whistles and special programs, but until our leaders were equipped to do their job well, none of the results that we had hoped for were sustainable. It reminded me of, uh, I think John Maxwell is the one who said it, when he said, everything rises and falls on leadership. And, and really, as you think about that, it's not just a corporate ideal. That really is a, a biblical principle as well. If you don't believe me, just go to First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles. And there you're going to find the description of the leadership in Israel. And when it says that the king did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, you will find that the nation experienced peace and prosperity. But when it describes the king as having done what was evil in the sight of the Lord, without exception, you will find famine and disease and war. Everything rises and falls on leadership. The reason I bring that up is because when we look at what we believe as Christians... The same principle applies in the sense that everything rises and falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible even admits this dependence. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says this. It says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith also in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And listen to this. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have truly perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are to be of all men most pitied. Everything rises and falls on the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. And since our faith admittedly hinges on this truth, I thought it would be good for us to spend some time this morning just considering together what it means and why it matters. So before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do come before you on this blessed day when we really do celebrate uh, the central truth of faith in you as we recognize your victory over death in your resurrection. Father, you made a big point of this in Scripture to make sure that we didn't miss the, the central point of what it is that we believe. And I pray that this morning that there would be new light shed in our hearts and in our minds so that we can capture the fullness of the significance of your resurrection. And so, Father, may we do that by the work of your Spirit within our time. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, if you pick up a Bible, you don't have to read very far into the New Testament to realize that that Jesus made some pretty shocking claims. In fact, I think the most shocking, and what some would suggest would be the case, is one that he made at the Feast of Dedication. In Jerusalem. Now, this is a popular event. So there are lots of people that have gathered around at the Feast of Dedication, including the religious leaders, who corner Jesus in the midst of a crowd, and essentially they, they ask him, they say, Look, Jesus, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, would you just come out and tell us? Jesus looks at them, and essentially he says, I have, but you didn't believe. Let me tell you again, I and the Father are one. Now, if you think about that, it's a shocking statement for him to make. And and John records a similar statement that he makes with his disciples when he tells them, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He, He said this after having explained to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. These claims are shocking because when you understand what he's saying, essentially, Jesus is declaring, I am God. I am God. When you see me, you see the Father because the Father and I are one. And throughout his ministry, both through his teaching and through the miracles, Jesus set out to validate this claim. In fact, in John's gospel, he says that there are actually many more miracles than what we have recorded in the Bible. But what we have is sufficient for us to believe and know that Jesus is the Christ, that he is who he said he is. And I think there's no event in all of Scripture that validates this truth more than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There were a lot of people throughout the history of the Bible, who taught things. There were those who performed miracles, but there is only one resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So important is the resurrection that that Jesus actually took the time to to tell his disciples about what was going to happen before the event ever occurred. It, It was as if he didn't want them to miss what would be the cornerstone of their faith. And so on their way into Jerusalem on this particular day, he turns to his disciples and he says this. He says, Behold, we are coming up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered up to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, 
he will be raised up. Now, I believe when his disciples heard this statement made by Jesus, although they didn't fully understand what he had in mind, I don't see how they could help but think back to an event that occurred not too long ago at the tomb of Lazarus. When Jesus gave them a glimpse of his power over death. The scripture tells us that Jesus purposefully delayed when he learned of Lazarus' condition so that when he arrived, it would be after he had died and he could give those who were there a taste of what is to come. When he arrives, by this time, Lazarus had in fact died and was in the tomb for, the scripture tells us, four days. The family was in a time of mourning. They were weeping when Jesus came to them. And the scripture tells us in a beautiful way. Jesus saw their tears and he wept with them. After consoling them, Jesus says, it's it's time to call Lazarus from the grave. Now, you can imagine that this was confusing to the people that were there. They really didn't understand what he was talking about. So confusing that Martha steps forward and she she said, Jesus, no, you don't understand. Lazarus has been in the grave for four days now. He's definitely dead. And when you pull back that stone the stench will be terrible. Jesus said, Martha, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. He goes on to explain, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you, Martha, believe this is true? In other words, Martha, I am God. I have the power over life. And I have the power over death. Watch what I do with your brother. Because what I do for him, I can do for you. I am the resurrection and the life. What that means is that your eternal destiny is in my hands. Do you believe this is true? That's what the resurrection means. And the reason it matters is because the question Jesus asked Martha on that day is the exact same question he asked every one of us. Do you believe this is true? Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that your eternal destiny is in his hands? Do you believe this is true? Because the Bible makes it clear that we are dead in our trespasses and sins and powerless to change our condition. Like Lazarus, apart from Christ, we are in a tomb, imprisoned by sin, with no ability in and of ourselves to come alive. We need God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Because only God can make us alive together with Christ. See, just as Jesus called out Lazarus, I believe he stands in our life and he does the exact same thing, asking us, come forth in faith out of that tomb of darkness and live in the light of new life in me. I am the resurrection and the life. You see, the resurrection proves that Jesus is who he said he is. 
And it matters because it shows us that He has the power to give us new life. The question Jesus asked Martha still stands today. Do you believe this is true? Our response ultimately determines whether we're made alive together with Christ or we remain dead in our trespasses and sins apart from Him. And as we think about that, I want us to consider what what the Bible means when it says that when Jesus rose from the grave, that He conquered sin and death. Because even though I believe I've answered the question that Jesus asked Martha, and I've said, yes, I believe that you are who you say you are. I still struggle with sin. (laughs) Like Paul even confessed in Scripture, I end up oftentimes doing the things that I don't want to do and not doing the things that I know I should do. And there's not a person in this room who's being honest with themselves that doesn't hear that statement and say, yep, I know exactly what you're talking about. So what does it mean for the resurrection of Jesus to overcome the power of sin and death? In particular, what does that mean for for me and you? Because I know I still struggle with sin. And and the last time I checked, nobody's figured out a way not to die. So it appears that death is still the master. And we are still the slave. But when we look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it tells a different story. The scripture says that Jesus has been raised from the dead as the first fruits. That term, first fruits, is used to describe what will be a harvest of those who will be raised to a new life, the first being Jesus Christ. Death may have had a sting, but Jesus had the final victory. He rose from the grave. And when we follow him in faith, we will do the same. His victory becomes our hope. He is the the first fruits of a harvest of those who put their faith and trust in Him. But here's an even better news, as if it could get better than that, right? Not only do we have a future hope, a resurrection from the dead, what the resurrection of Jesus Christ tells us is that there is a present reality, a victory over sin. Paul describes it in Romans chapter 5 when he says this, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. He goes on to say in verse 11, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so the question here is, who is your master? Sin and death can still rule and reign in your life when they are your master. The Bible says that we are slaves to the one we obey, either sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. Because if Jesus is our master and he has conquered sin and death, which his resurrection says that he has, then his victory becomes our reward. There is a future harvest, but there is a present promise. Your faith in Christ has freed you from the enslaving power of sin. Now, I know a lot of you probably are thinking at this point, yeah, but 
but I still struggle with sin. Exactly. That's the beauty. You struggle with sin. There is a pain of conviction inside your heart by the work of the Spirit that says, this is not right. That is a gift. It reminds me of whenever I was at the hospital and I treated patients who had diabetes. And in its most severe form, these patients lose their sensation of pain, typically in their hands and in their feet to begin with. And what happens is, is they step on something, a nail or, or something that, that pierces their skin. They never know it because they don't feel it. They have no sensation of pain. That then turns into a wound that then becomes fit, infected. They don't know it. They don't have the sensation of pain. That infection then becomes gangrenous, and the reason I'm typically treating them is because they've had an amputation, and they've lost a part of their body because they have no sensation of pain. And they will tell you the gift of pain because it's what will save your life. When the presence of God is within you through the work of His Holy Spirit, that conviction of the Holy Spirit is a gift. And the fact that it exists within the life of a believer through faith and trust in Christ tells us that He is at work within you, giving you the power to overcome sin. You see, slaves don't have a choice. But you're not a slave to sin. And so you do. And when you turn to Christ, you find that His power is perfected in your weakness. That's a promise. Paul finishes that section in Romans by saying this, Therefore, what benefit were you, to, were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of these things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and a slave to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this passage. And he says this. Listen closely. He says, as long as you did what you felt like doing, ignoring God, you didn't bother, have to bother with right thinking or, or right living or right anything for that matter. But do you call that a free life? What did you get out of it? Nothing that you're proud of now. Where did it get you? A dead end. But now that you've found that you don't have to listen to sin tell you what to do, and you've discovered the delight of listening to God tell you how to walk, what a surprise. A, a whole, healed, put-together life right now with more and more life on the way. Work hard for sin. Your whole life and your pension is death. But God's gift is real life, eternal life, delivered by Jesus, your Master. Isn't that great? In the resurrection, Jesus conquered sin and death. He became their master. And when we invite him to rule and reign in our life, when, when Jesus becomes our master, his victory becomes our reward. We're dead to sin, forgiven, set free, and made alive to God in Christ Jesus. Both now and for all eternity. That's what the resurrection means. And that's why it matters. And I want you to think about that for a moment. Because when we talk about this relationship with God, this eternally significant relationship with God, really that's a fairly foreign concept in our culture today. 
For we live in what some have defined as a flat culture. It's a term used to describe a society where relationships are shallow at best because there's really just no depth to them. It's a a flat culture. For example, I don't have to enter into your life and ask you how you're doing. When it's convenient for me, I'll just check your Facebook status. Right? I can avoid the inconvenience of a conversation by just sending you a text. That way I don't have to pick up the phone and talk to you. Right? Marriages often take a back seat to careers. And our families suffer when our lives become so busy that having a meal together around the table, unfortunately for many, is a thing of the past. Parents don't know what is happening in the lives of their kids because amidst all the activities that everyone is involved in, parents and kids alike, there's just not enough time to ask. It's a flat culture, a society that is increasingly absent of meaningful relationships, where an intentional investment of our time is almost, sadly, too much to ask. And here's the danger. If you and I can be distracted from a meaningful relationship with others, even someone as important as our own spouse and family, then why in the world would we give any attention to a relationship with God? Why? You need to understand that this is our enemy at work. He is a thief. And he is seeking to steal, to kill, and destroy. It is no accident that we are being distracted from the only relationship that gives us life and hope and peace. Because when our enemy has our attention, we are under his control. So the resurrection matters because it is like a megaphone of God's love. It is a declaration that his promise, it is true. It is the utmost of evidence that you and I are being pursued by a great affection. That's what the resurrection means. It's like a a merciful wake-up call that faith in Jesus Christ matters. He's alive. He has come. He has said. He has demonstrated. He has called us out of the tomb of darkness to new life in Him. You see, our enemy has no shortage of ideas that bring death and destruction to our lives. But listen to me. Our Savior has come that we might have life and have it abundantly. That's the promise. And the resurrection declares that there is no obstacle, not even death, that can separate us from the love of Christ. Listen to this. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And you cannot see that more clearly than in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Jesus rose from the grave, He made a way for us to enter into a relationship with God, a relationship that we cannot live without. 
And don't forget about that passage that we began with this morning when it says that if this life is all there is to live for, if this world plagued with sin and death and war and famine, if that's God's best, then yeah, we are to be most pitied for living for something so shallow. But that's not what the Bible tells us. It says that, in fact, this world is is passing away along with all of Satan's cool toys and, and tricks to distract us. Because one day, the resurrected Jesus will introduce those who have faith and trust in Him to a resurrected life. Free from sin's corruption. In a place where God promises, I will make all things new. I love the the picture that the Bible creates of this when it tells us that, that Jesus Himself will come to us and He will wipe away our tears. That this is a place where there will be no more death. No more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. These things will pass away, new things will come. Never to be corrupted by sin again. That, my friends, is what we are living for. Made possible through the death and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is what seals the destiny of our relationship with Him for all eternity. And that's ultimately what we're living for. Everything rises and falls on the resurrection. It is the means by which we enter into this relationship that brings us life. There's a story of a a young man, eight years old, who had Down syndrome. His name's Philip. His parents really worked hard to try to get Philip to fit in kind of the mainstream of society. But as you might expect, (laughs) that was not always easy to do. Eight-year-olds are not always as kind and gentle as we would want them to be, (laughs) right? And so Philip had a hard time fitting into the crowd. Even in Sunday school, it was difficult for him to feel like he was a part of the other kids. So the Sunday school teacher that he had really made an effort to make sure everybody fit in and and knew and understood that they were all created special by God. On one particular day, actually the Sunday after Easter, it was a beautiful spring day. So what he did is he got the class together and he had brought those big eggs like you used to store pantyhose in, right? He took those eggs and he brought them to class and he gave them instructions. He says, okay, what I want you to do is I want you to go outside and I want you to find anything that you can find that symbolizes new life. And I want you to hide it inside this egg. So he took them outside, and sure enough, they spread out, and everybody's looking for those symbols of new life. After a while, he calls them back together. They all go into the room. They huddle around the table, and one by one, the teacher takes those eggs, and he, he opens them up, and he shows them what's inside. There were things that you might expect, things like flowers and green grass and leaves. I think one boy actually stored a butterfly inside there. <laughs> Until they came to one, and he opened it up, and there was nothing inside. It was empty. So one of the eight-year-old boys said, well, that's stupid. <laughs> Another one chimed in and said, well, someone didn't do what they were told to do. That's not fair. Then Philip spoke up, and he said, that one's mine. And almost a moment of bold confidence, he, he steps forward, and he says, that was mine. I did do it. Remember, Jesus is alive. And the tomb is empty. (laughs) Not too long after that, uh, Philip got sick. 
it was something that most kids probably would have been able to bounce back from, but he was uh, never one to be able to recover. And unfortunately, Philip died at a young age of nine years old. It was at his funeral that this group of boys (laughs) approached the casket, not with flowers, but with their teacher. And they placed on the grave empty eggs because Philip had taught them that the tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. And that is why we have new life. We're going to finish up with uh, the story of the resurrection that you can see played out in front of you and sung about in a song. And when we do, I want to just ask you to sit back and let this soak in. And, And I would even encourage you to think about the passage that says that, but God, who is rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. Faith that He is who He says He is, and that He has done for you that which you could not do for yourself. And just like He stood at the tomb of Lazarus, He stands in our lives and He calls us to do the same. Come, come to me and live the life that I've promised, the new life in Christ. Let's look at this together.
Jesus' life. Don't be distracted by the world because they have lots of promises, but they're empty. The tomb is empty, but it is full of promises. Believe that what he says is true, putting your faith and trust in him and come alive in him. Let me pray for us. God, we are so grateful for the celebration we have. It is a message the world is dying to hear. So I pray that those of us who have faith and trust in you will not be ashamed of the gospel, the good news that Jesus is alive and that we have life in him. Father, if there are those who are here this morning who are in that tomb of darkness, enslaved by the power of sin, that they would hear you call out to them, come forth, come alive, step out of the darkness and walk in the light through faith in Christ alone. Father, may we uh, live like we are alive, anticipating the day of your return when we will be called forth to the resurrected life. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great Easter, everyone.